chapter three of colonial folkways by charles mclean andrews this librivox recording is in the public domain colonial houses it is well worth while for us at this point to look more in detail at the colonial towns to see the houses in which our ancestors dwelt and to note the architecture of their public edifices for these men had a distinctive style of building as characteristic of their age as skyscrapers and apartment houses are of the present century the household furnishings have also a charm of their own and in many cases by their combination of utility and good taste have provided models for the craftsmen of a later day a brief survey of colonial houses inside and out will serve to give us a much clearer idea of the environment in which the people lived during the colonial era the materials used by the colonists for building were wood brick and more rarely stone at first practically all houses were of wood as was natural in a country where this material lay ready to every man's hand and where the means for making brick or cutting stone were not readily accessible clay though early used for chimneys was not substantial enough for house-building and lime for mortar and plaster was not easy to obtain though limestone was discovered in new england in sixteen ninety seven it was not known at all in the tidewater section of the south where lime continued to the end of the era to be made from calcined oyster shells the seventeenth century was the period of wooden houses wooden churches and wooden public buildings it was the eighteenth century which saw the erection of brick buildings in america up to the time of the revolution bricks were brought from england and holland and are found entered in cargo lists as late as seventeen seventy though they probably served often only as ballast but most of the bricks used in colonial buildings were moulded and burnt in america there were brick kilns everywhere in the colonies from portsmouth to savannah indeed bricks were made north and south in large enough quantities to be exported yearly to the west indies as building stone scarcely existed in the south all important buildings there were of brick or in case greater strength were needed as for fort johnston at the mouth of the cape fear river or the fortifications of charleston of tappy work a mixture of concrete and shells brick walls were often built very thick those of st philip's church brunswick still show three feet in depth chimneys were heavy often in stacks and windows as a rule were small the bonding was english flemish or running according to the taste of the builder and many of the houses had stone trimming which had to be brought from england if it were of free stone as was suggested for king's chapel boston or of marble as in governor tryon's palace in new Bern. buildings of stone were not common and were confined chiefly to the north where this material could be easily and cheaply obtained as early as sixteen thirty nine henry whitfield erected a house of stone at guilford connecticut to serve in part as a place of defence 
and in other places here and there were to be found stone buildings used for various purposes it has been said that king's chapel boston built in seventeen forty nine to fifty four was the first building in america to be constructed of hewn stone but this is not the case some of the early houses in new york as well as the two anglican churches were of hewn stone the malbone country house near newport built before seventeen fifty was also of hewn stone and all the corners and sides of the windows painted to represent marble there were many houses in the colonies painted to resemble stone and some in which only the first story or the basement was of this material while in many instances there were broad stone steps leading up to a house otherwise constructed of wood or brick stone for building purposes was therefore well known and frequently used travellers who visited the leading towns in the period from seventeen fifty to seventeen sixty three have left descriptions which help us to visualize the external features of these places portsmouth the most northerly town of importance had houses of both wood and brick large and exceeding neat we are told generally three-story high and well sashed and glazed with the best glass the rooms well plastered and many wainscotted or hung with painted paper from england the outside clapboarded very neatly salem was a large town well built many genteel large houses which though of wood are all planed and painted on the outside in imitation of hewn stone by seventeen fifty boston had about three thousand houses and twenty thousand inhabitants two-thirds of the houses were of wood two or three stories high mostly sashed the remainder of brick substantially built and in excellent architectural taste the streets were well paved with stone a thing rare in new england but those in the north end were crooked narrow and disagreeable worcester was one of the best built and prettiest inland little towns that lord adam gordon had seen in america the houses in newport with one or two exceptions were of wood making a good appearance and also as well furnished as in most places you will meet with many of the rooms being hung with printed canvas and paper which looks very neat others are well wainscotted and painted new london with its one street a mile long by the river-side and its houses built of wood seemed in seventeen fifty to be new and neat new haven which covered a great deal of ground was laid out in nine squares around a green or market-place and contained many houses in wood a few in brick or stone a brick state house a brick meeting-house and yale college which was being rebuilt in brick middletown though one of the most important commercial centres between new york and boston and the third town in connecticut had only wooden houses hartford a large scattering town on a small river the little river not the connecticut is meant was built chiefly of wood with here and there a brick dwelling-house new york with two or three thousand buildings and from sixteen to seventeen thousand people in seventeen sixty was very irregular in plan with streets which were crooked and exceedingly narrow but generally pretty well paved thus adding much to the decency and cleanness of the place and the advantage of carriage 
many of the houses were built in the old dutch fashion with their gables to the street but others were more modern many of them spacious genteel houses some being four or five stories high others not above two of hewn stone brick and white holland tiles neat but not grand a round cupola capping a square wooden church tower rising above a few clustering houses was all that marked the town of brooklyn while a fairy tavern and a few houses were all that foreshadowed the future greatness of jersey city albany was as yet a town of dirty and crooked streets with its houses badly built chiefly of wood and unattractive in appearance southward across the river from new york were elizabeth new brunswick and perth amboy the last with a few houses for the quality folk but a mean village albeit one of the capitals of the province of new jersey burlington the other capital consisted of one spacious large street that runs down to the river with several cross streets on which were a few tolerable good buildings with a courthouse which made but a poor figure considering its advantageous location trenton or trent town was described in seventeen forty nine as a fine town and near to delaware river with fine stone buildings and a fine river and intervals meadows etc philadelphia had two thousand one hundred houses in seventeen fifty and three thousand six hundred in seventeen sixty five built almost entirely of brick generally three stories high and well sashed so that the city must make take it upon the whole a very good figure the virginia ladies who visited the city were wont to complain of the small rooms and monotonous architecture every house like every other the streets were paved with flat footwalks on each side of the street and well illumined with lamps which boston does not appear to have had until seventeen seventy three wilmington on the delaware was a very young town in seventeen fifty all the houses being new and built of brick newcastle the capital was a poor town of little importance there were but few towns in maryland annapolis the capital was charmingly situated on a peninsula falling different ways to the water built in an irregular form the streets generally running diagonally and ending in the town-house others on a house that was built for the governor but never was finished this governor's house afterwards became the main building of st john's college a majority of the residences were of brick substantially built within brick walls enclosing gardens in true english fashion across the potomac was williamsburg the capital of virginia and the seat of william and mary college built partly of brick and partly of wood and resembling it seemed to lord adam gordon a good country town in england norfolk which was built chiefly of brick was a mercantile centre with warehouses rope-walks wharves and shipyards while fredericksburg at the head of navigation on the rappahannock was constructed of wood and brick its houses roofed with shingles painted to resemble slate winchester in the shenandoah valley was described in seventeen fifty five as a town built of limestone and covered with slate with which the hills abound it was the centre of a settled farming country and its inhabitants enjoyed most of the necessities but few of the luxuries of life and had almost no books it is described as being inhabited by a spurious race of mortals known by the appellation of scotch-irish in all of these towns were one or more churches the market-house prison and pillory and in the chief city at the usual place of execution was the gallows of the colony the older towns of north carolina edenton bath halifax and new Bern were all small and in seventeen sixty were either stationary or declining 
their houses were built of wood and except for tryon's palace at new bern an extravagant structure considering the resources of the colony the public buildings were of no significance brunswick too was declining and was but a poor town with a few scattered houses on the edge of a wood inhabited by merchants wilmington was now rapidly advancing to the leading place in the province because of its secure harbor easy communication with the back country accessibility to the other parts of the colony fresh water and improved postal facilities in seventeen sixty it had about eight hundred people its houses though not spacious were in general very commodious and well furnished peter dubois wrote of wilmington in seventeen fifty seven it has greatly the preference in my esteem to new Bern. the regularity of its streets is equal to that of philadelphia and the buildings are in general very good many of brick two or three stories high with double piazzas which make a good appearance charleston or charlestown as the name was always written in colonial times and is thus described by pelatiah webster who visited it in seventeen sixty five it contains about one thousand houses with inhabitants five thousand whites and twenty thousand blacks has eight houses for religious worship the streets run north and south and east and west intersecting each other at right angles they are not paved except the footways within the posts about six feet wide which are paved with brick in the principal streets according to a south carolina law all buildings had to be of brick but the law was not observed and many houses were of cypress and yellow pine lawrence said in seventeen fifty six that none but the better class glazed their houses the sanitary condition of all colonial towns was bad enough but the grand jury presentments for charleston and savannah which constantly found fault with the condition of the streets the sewers and necessary houses and the insufficient scavenging leave the impression on the mind of the reader that these towns especially were afflicted with many offensive smells and odours the total absence of any proper health precautions explains in part the terrible epidemics chiefly of smallpox which scourged the colonists in the eighteenth century taking the colonial area through its entire length and breadth we find individual houses of almost every description from the superb mansions of the carters in virginia and of the vassals in massachusetts to the small wooden frame buildings forty by twenty feet or thereabouts with a shade on the back side and a porch on the front and the simple houses of the country districts or the western frontier hundreds of which were small of one story unpainted covered with rough-hewn or sawn flat boards weather-stained with few windows and no panes of glass and without adornment or architectural taste one traveller speaks of the small plantation houses in maryland as very bad and ill-contrived their furniture mean their cooks and housewifery worse if possible and another says that an apartment to sleep in and another for domestic purposes with a contiguous storehouse and conveniences for their livestock gratified the utmost ambition of the settlers in frederick county many a colonist north of the potomac lived in nothing better than the crib or block-house which was made of squared logs and roofed with clapboards in contrast to the typical square-built houses of new england the dutch along the hudson and even to the eastward in litchfield county connecticut built quaint low structures which they frequently placed on a hillside in order to utilize the basement as living rooms for the family the better colonial houses were wainscotted and panelled or plastered and whitewashed and the woodwork trim cornices stair railings and newel posts was often elaborately carved floors were sometimes of double thickness and were laid so that the seam or joint of the upper course shall fall upon the middle of the lower plank which prevents the air from coming through the floor in winter or the water falling down in summer when they wash their houses 
roofs were covered with tiles slate shingles and lead though much of the last was removed for bullets at the time of the revolution flat tiles made in philadelphia and elsewhere were used for paving chimney hearths and firebacks imported from england were widely introduced among the pennsylvania germans wood stoves were generally used but soft coal brought as ballast from newcastle liverpool and other ports in england and scotland was also for sale stone coal or anthracite was familiar to pennsylvania settlers as early as seventeen sixty three but until just before the revolution was not burned as fuel except locally and on a small scale wood was consumed in enormous quantities and we are told that at nominee hall there were kept burning twenty-eight fires which required four loads of wood a day there were few professional architects for colonial planters and carpenters did their own planning and building what is sometimes called a carpenter's colonial style was often designed on the spot or taken from batty langley's sure guide the builder's jewel or the british palladio smybert the painter and paint-shop man of boston designed faneuil hall and succeeded in creating a very unsuccessful building architecturally the first professional architect in america was peter harrison who drew the plans for king's chapel the redwood library the jewish synagogue and brick market at newport yet even he combined designing with other avocations in truth there was no great need of architects in colonial days styles did not vary much certainly not in new england and the middle colonies and a good carpenter and builder could do all that was needed there were scores of houses in new england similar to samuel seabury's rectory at hampstead a story and a half high in front with a roof of a single pitch sloping down to one story in the rear low ceilings everywhere four rooms with a hall on the first floor a kitchen behind and three or four rooms on the second story the brick houses were more elaborate and were sometimes built with massive end chimneys between which was a steep pitched roof with dormers and a walk from chimney to chimney many feet wide other houses made of wood as well as brick had hipped roofs with end chimneys or roofs converging to a square centre and a railed lookout all the nearly one hundred and fifty colonial houses still standing in connecticut conformed to a common type though they differ greatly in the details of their panelling mantels cupboards staircases closed or open beam ceilings fireplaces and the like some had slave quarters in the basement others under the rafters and what was called in one instance the black hole many of even the better houses were unpainted inside and out many had paper hung or tacked afterwards pasted on the walls and in a few noteworthy cases in new england the chimney breasts were adorned with paintings the floors were usually bare or covered with matting rugs were used chiefly at the bedside but carpets were rare philadelphia which was famous for the uniformity of its architecture must have contained in seventeen sixty many houses of the style of that built for provost smith of the college of philadelphia in addition to a garret this dwelling had three stories respectively eleven ten and nine feet high the brick outside walls were fourteen inches thick and the partition walls of the same material nine inches there were windows and window glass heavy shutters a plain cornice cedar gutters and pipes the woodwork inside and out was painted white and all the rooms were plastered no mention is made of white marble steps but there may have been such for no philadelphia house was complete without them the southern houses both on the plantations and in the towns varied so widely in their style of architecture that no single description will serve to characterize all such buildings as the governor's palace at williamsburg tryon's palace at newburn and the government house at annapolis were handsome buildings provided with conveniences for entertainment and that at newburn contained rooms for the gathering of assembly and council 
the most representative southern plantation house was of brick with wings the kitchens on one side and the carriage house on the other sometimes attached directly to the central mansion and sometimes entirely separate or connected only by a corridor in the carolinas and georgia however there were many rectangular houses without wings built of wood or brick with rooms available for summer use in the basement the roof was often capped with a cupola and commanded a wide prospect the dwelling-houses of charleston were among the most distinctive and quaint of all colonial structures some of them were divided into tenements quite unlike the tenements and flats of the present day for in addition to its independent portion of the house each family had its own yard and garden overseers houses were as a rule small about twenty feet by twelve with brick chimneys and plastered rooms a typical savannah house had two stories with a handsome balcony in front and a piazza the whole length of the building in the rear with a bedroom at one end and a storehouse at the other the dining-room was on the second floor and everywhere for convenience and comfort were to be found closets and fireplaces among the gentry in a country where storms were frequent electrical rods were in use and in seventeen sixty three one alexander bell of virginia advertised a machine for protecting houses from being struck by lightning though what his contrivance was we do not know the town halls and courthouses generally followed english models with public offices and assembly rooms on the upper floor and a market and shops below the southern courthouses were at first built of wood and later of brick with shingled roofs heavy plank floors and occasionally a cupola or belfry those of the eighteenth century either included the prison and pillory or were connected with them the inadequacy of jailed accommodation was a cause of constant complaint not only did grand juries and newspapers point out the need of quarters so arranged that debtors felons and negroes should not be thrown together but the occupants themselves protested against the nauseating smells and odours in some of the prisons it is true a separate cage was provided for the negroes and in north carolina prison bounds covering some six acres about the building were laid out for the use of the prisoners an arrangement which was not abolished till the nineteenth century in all the cities of the north and south stores and shops were to be found occupying the first floor while the family lived in the rooms above as a rule a shop meant a workshop where articles were made a store a storehouse where goods were kept but in practice usage varied as shop was in common use in new england for any place where things were sold and store was the usual term in philadelphia and the south an apprentice riding home to england in seventeen fifty five and trying to explain the use of the term said stores here in virginia are much like shops in london only with this difference the shops sell but one kind or species of wares and stores all kinds some of these stores particularly in maryland and virginia were located away from the urban centres in the interior near the courthouses at the crossroads along the rivers at the tobacco inspection houses or wherever else men congregated for business or public duty they were often controlled by english or scottish firms and managed by agents sent to america they received their supplies from great britain and they sold for credit cash or tobacco almost everything that the neighbourhood needed varied as were the architectural features of colonial houses they were paralleled by an equal diversity in the household effects with which these dwellings were equipped it is impossible even to summarize the information given in the thousands of extant wills inventories and invoices which reveal the contents and furnishings of these houses chairs bureaus tables bedsteads buffets cupboards were in general use they were made of hickory pine maple cypress oak and even mahogany which began to be used as early as seventeen thirty 
from the meagre dining-room outfit of only one chair a bench and a table all rough and home-made we passed to the furnishings of the richer merchants in the northern cities and of the wealthier planters in maryland virginia and the carolinas but we cannot take the establishments of wentworth hancock vassal fanuel cuyler morris carter beverly manigault or lawrence as typical of conditions which prevailed in the majority of colonial homes some people had silver plate mahogany fine china and copper utensils others owned china delftware and furniture of plain wood with perhaps a few silver spoons a porringer and an occasional mahogany chair and table still others and these by far the largest number used only pewter earthenware and wooden dishes with the simpler essentials spinning-wheel flat-irons pots and kettles lamps and candlesticks but no luxuries there was in addition of course the class of the hopelessly poor but it was not large and need not be reckoned with here the average new england country household was a sort of self-sustaining unit which depended little on the world beyond its own gates its equipment included not only the usual chairs beds tables and kitchen utensils and tableware but also shoemakers tools and shoe leather frequently tanned in the neighbourhood and badly done as a rule surgeons tools and apothecary stuff salves and ointments branding irons pestle and mortar lamps guns and perhaps a sword harness and fittings occasionally a still or a cider press and outfits for carpentering and blacksmithing the necessary utensils for use in the household or on the farm were more important than upholstery carved woodwork fine linen or a silver plate everywhere there were hundreds of families which concerned themselves little about ornament or design they had no money to spend on unessentials still less on luxuries and from necessity they used what they already possessed until it was broken or worn out then if it were not entirely useless they repaired and patched it and went on as before economy and convenience made them use materials that were close at hand and in many new england towns a familiar figure was the wood-turner who made plates and other utensils out of dish timber as it was called a white wood which was probably poplar or linden but not basswood yet economical as these people were even the unpretentious households possessed an abundance of mugs and tankards which suggest their one indulgence and their enjoyment of strong drink as conditions of life improved and wealth increased the number of those who were able to indulge in luxuries also increased the period after seventeen thirty was one of great prosperity in the colonies owing to the enlarged opportunities for making money which trade commerce and markets furnished though it was also a time of higher prices rapid advance in the cost of living and general complaint of the inadequacy of existing fees and salaries those who were engaged in trade and had access to markets were able to indulge in luxuries which were unknown to the earlier settlers and which remained unknown to those living in the rural districts and on the frontier in the northern cities and on southern plantations costly and beautiful household furnishings appeared furniture was carved and upholstered in leather and rich fabrics tables were adorned with silver china and glassware and walls were hung with expensive papers and decorated with paintings and engravings all brought from abroad a house thus equipped was not unlikely to contain a mahogany dining-table capable of seating from fourteen to twenty persons and an equal number of best russia leather chairs two of which would be arm or elbow chairs double-nailed with broad seats and leather backs washington for example in seventeen fifty seven bought two neat mahogany tables four and a half feet square when spread and to join occasionally and one dozen neat and strong mahogany chairs some with gothic arched backs and one an easy chair on casters about the rooms were pieces of mahogany furniture of various styles tea-tables card-tables candle-stands settees and sofas 
on the walls which were frequently papered painted in colour or stencilled in patterns hung family portraits painted by artists whose names are in many cases unknown to us and framed pictures of hunting scenes still life ships and humorous subjects among which the engravings of hogarth were always prime favourites on the chimney-breast above the mantel there was sometimes a scene or landscape either painted directly on the wall itself or executed to order on canvas in england and brought to america there were eight-day clocks and mantel-clocks and sconces carved and gilt upstairs and down in the cupboard and on the sideboard would be silver plate in great variety and sets of best english china ivory-handled knives and forks glass in considerable profusion though glassware as a rule was not much used diaper tablecloths and napkins brass chafing dishes and steel plate warmers there was always a centrepiece or epeigne of silver glass or china in the bedrooms were pier glasses and bedsteads in many forms and colours of mahogany and other woods frequently there were four posters with carved and fluted pillars and carved cornices or cornishes as they were generally spelled the bedsteads were provided with hair mattresses and feather beds woollen blankets and linen sheets and were adorned with silk damask or chintz curtains and valances russian gauze or lawn was used for mosquito nets for mosquitoes were a great pest to the colonists on the large plantations there was to be found a great variety of utensils for kitchen artisan and farm use most of which were brought from england but some particularly iron pots axes and size from new england for the kitchen there were hard metal plates copper kettles and pans pewter dishes in large numbers chiefly for servants use yellow metal spoons stone bottles crocks jugs mugs butter pots and heavy utensils in iron for cooking purposes for the farm there were grindstones saws files knives axes adzes planes augers irons hay rakes carts forks reaping hooks wheat sieves spades shovels watering pots ploughs ploughshares and mould boards harnessing traces harrows ox chains and scythes the farmer was thus provided with all the implements necessary for mowing clearing underbrush and cradling wheat and all the other essential activities of an agricultural life a wheel plough is mentioned as early as seventeen thirty two and in seventeen forty eight james crockett an influential charlestonian in england sent over a plough designed to weed trench sow and cover indigo but of its construction we unfortunately know nothing the colonists usually imported such articles as millstones as large as forty-eight inches in diameter and fourteen inches thick frog spindles and other parts for a tub-mill or grist-mill and presses with lignum vitae rollers for cider copper stills with sweat-worms in a capacity as high as sixty gallons vats for indigo and pans for evaporating salt for fishing there were plenty of rods lines hooks seines with leads and corks and eel-pots in addition to this varied equipment nearly all the plantations had outfits for coopering tanning shoemaking and other necessary occupations of a somewhat isolated community separate buildings were erected in which this artisan work was done not only for the planter himself but also for his neighbours indeed their returns from this community labour constituted an important item in the annual statement of many a planter's income End of chapter three